All right, good morning, church. My name is Spencer, and it's an honor and a privilege to be here this morning to bring forth God's word. Um, it's good to see everybody. I just got back into the country last week, so it's great to be here. Um, I hope y'all are enjoying this series on judges. It was, um, is it something I'm doing? No, okay. Um, it usually is. Um, I hope you're enjoying this series on Judges. It was kind of my idea that I pitched to the elders because I love the book of Judges. And if you have been here listening to all the messages, you might start to notice this cycle and this very repetitive cycle throughout Judges of people, everything's okay, and then they kind of turn away from God and do what's right in their own eyes is what it says a lot of the times, and they fall away from God. And then an outside force, whether it's the Canaanites, Amorites, one of the ites come in and enslave everybody, and there's this season of oppression from outward forces, and then God rises, raises up a judge or somebody that saves his people, and everybody's celebrating, and everything's great, and it's awesome for a minute. And then they go right back into the cycle of this sin. So there's deep sin, there's a horrible fall, and then there's a hero that uh, uh, comes and pulls them out of it. And it's been that way every, every chapter so far until we get to chapter 9 today. This is the first break in the cycle where, where there's not a hero in the story. And there's not an outward force that comes in to bring the oppression of the people. And that's very interesting. That's what we're going to look at today. But before we start, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for these incredible stories, Lord. I thank you for the repetition. I know I need it. I need to see that um, it's a daily struggle, that it's a constant faith, that there's issues happening, that your grace is never ending, no matter how many times we fall into the cycle of sin. Father, I pray that you would just give us your word to protect us, that you would um, help us delight in your law and see the, the beauty found in it, that it's there not to keep us from having fun, but to protect us from ourselves. As we read the stories today, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our mind to receive your words of truth. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges 9. And we're going to start where BJ, last week Jonathan um, broke away from the series a minute before the um, family service, but um, BJ preached on Gideon, who's one of my favorite heroes. But he preached, if you were here on his last message, he preached about Gideon didn't end so well. And that's the problem, is that even though these great heroes of faith God raises them up to lead the people out of sin and oppression. They're still sinful men. None of them are perfect. None of them are holy. Even Gideon, who was this very cowardice person that had this great rise to fame and um, power and led the people out of oppression. Well, towards the end, he, had, he messed up a lot. He really messed up. And Today, we get to see how that affects things later. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, Ambimelech. Now, if you remember Ambimelech, if you read chapter 8, Ambimelech was 
the concubine half-breed son. So Gideon had 70 sons, which is a lot. He had 70 sons because he had seven, or he had a lot of wives. And one of the people that he had a son with was not even a wife. It was a concubine. And not only was she just a concubine, but she was a Canaanite, or a um, Shechemite, Shechem, Canaanite, meaning that she was from one of the tribes, heathen, pagan tribes, that weren't supposed to intermix with the children of Israel. So he has this concubine son named Ambimelech. Ambimelech actually means my father is king. So Ambimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, which is Gideon's other name, when he rises to power and fame and gets into all his trouble, that's what the people of Shechem called him, went to his mother's brother in Shechem and said to them all and to his mother's clan. Now remember, he's, ha- he's from their clan, but he's also son of Gideon. He asked the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have 70 of Jerubbabel's son rule over you, or just one man. And remember, I am your flesh and blood. So, wow. So, I don't know if you like to binge watch shows on Netflix, and I won't say some of them that I've watched, but this reading chapter 9, it kind of reminded me of some of these stories. This is a crazy story. The people of God are now kind of scattered. They're in a season of Gideon just um, delivered us, but now everything's still kind of jacked up a little bit. So Abimelech all of a sudden sees an opportunity. And he says, hey, mom, doesn't it make sense that I just rule over all the people in Shechem? Why would we have 70 different rulers, like ruling by committee? Why don't you let me be the guy. And he goes to his mother with this plan. And she's like, well, that sounds interesting. Let's, let's see. So it already starts with this, this idea of wanting power and control. So when the brothers, um, and he said to them, remember, I am your own flesh and blood. And by the way, wouldn't it be great if a Canaanite, not an Israelite, sat and rule over you? So, when the brothers repeated all of this to the citizens of Shechem, they were all inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bereth, and Abimelech used them to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. So, everybody agrees to it, which how crazy is that? He had no qualifications, he had zero experience, But he wanted to be in leadership and he wanted to have power. So they're like, okay, here's 70 pieces of silver that was given to a false god. We want to give that to you. So he uses that 70 pieces of silver and he hires reckless adventurers, which sounds crazy. So he goes out and finds mercenaries, basically. Men that are just crazy mercenaries. And he says, now I got my army. I have my gold. I have my plan. Let's take the next step. And this is where the story gets really crazy. They gave him the 70 shekels. And then it says, he went to his father's home in Oprah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, escaped by hiding. And then the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree, a pillar of Shechem, to crown Embelamech king. Okay, is that crazy to anybody else? 
So they say, yeah, we want you to be our leader. Here's 70 pieces of silver. He basically puts a bounty of one piece of silver per person, and he goes and he murders his 70 brothers just in cold blood, just crazy, murders them all. And the thing about one stone, it's talking about it was almost like a sacrifice, which later in Kings, we find out that on Coronation Day, the kings would be, give a big animal sacrifice to God on these stones. And, and the author's basically pointing out like his sacrifice to the false god was murdering all of his brothers. But just in great story form, one of them gets away, right? And by the way, what's also crazy to me about this is everybody was okay with it. After they hear that, it says, well, now they're going to all meet and have this big ceremony to say, yeah, you're a good king. I mean, they don't look at the character of this man who's trying to disrupt everything and have all the control and all the power for himself. And nobody blinks an eye at it. All the other people in Shechem are like, okay, that's cool. Let's make him our king. Do you see how far away they are from God at this point as a society? So Jotham, the one who escaped, and this is where the story gets really interesting. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed to the mountaintop at Mount Gizm. Now, but that's an important place. If you've heard, that you've heard of these mountains before, Shechem falls between two mountains. And these two mountains were very um, significant for Jewish culture. A lot of things happened. Matter of fact, Shechem's the first place that God called Abraham. Shechem's the first place they built the first altar when they come into the promised land. Shechem is a big deal for all of this stuff to be happening. So he climbs to the mountain and he shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, but they said to the olive tree, be our king. Now, let me, so at coronation, he just escaped with his life. He killed 69 of your brothers. You're the last son, the 70th son. And instead of just fleeing for your life, Jotham is the only person in the story that has any integrity at all, really, so far. So he decides what I'm going to do is when everybody gathers, I'm going to go up onto this ledge on the mountain and I'm going to shout down to them. He obviously had thought it out. He's like, they're probably going to kill me, so I'm not going to go right down into town. So I'm going to shout it from the mountain so that I can escape with my life after I say this. But I feel like somebody ought to say something. Do you ever feel that way? Like, man, I feel like I, somebody should say something. A lot of times that's God saying you should say something. But Jotham says somebody has to speak to this craziness. This is outrage, this is murder. This is not what a coronation should be built upon, murdering a bunch of people. So he's shouting down to them, and he tells them a parable. And it's called the parable and the curse of Jotham, the parable of the trees. And now listen, and we're going to try to glean something from this real quick. So he went, the trees, that represents the, 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 the people of Shechem and the children of Israel, went to the olive tree, and they said, will you be our king? But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, he went to the fig tree, come out and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and so sweet to hold sway over these trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come be our king. And it answered, should I give up my wine which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? 
So basically, he goes to, in the story, the trees go looking for a king, and they go to all these honorable, fruitful places. Because there were honorable, fruitful men, apparently, in the society. But none of them were interested in leading. None of them were interested in serving. They were all self-serving. If you look at what they were saying, they're like, why the fig tree doesn't want to leave, the, the wine tree does, the wine um, vine doesn't want to leave. So everybody that was probably more fit, more experienced, and better character to serve is unwilling to serve. So what happens? Well, the trees go to the thorn bush. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. And the thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Which is a joke. A thorn bush, a bramble, it's just like a, a worthless, no good, it bears no fruit. It actually caused a lot of fires back in the day. Because it would just get so dry, it would burst into flames. And it caused more problems than it was worth. And it says, oh, well, come take shade under my branches, which is ridiculous. But that's what I'm... And then it says, listen. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon were huge. They were these giant, majestic, huge trees. And they're bowing to this little thorn bush in the story that Jotham's telling. And then Jotham concludes the story and he says this. Listen. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith with, um, with making Ambelamech your king, and you have been good and fair to Jerubbabel and his family, and you have treated him as he deserves, which none of that happened. He's like, if it did, then may joy and peace be with you. Um, and think of my father that fought for you and risked his life to rescue you and hand you out of the hands of Midian. If then... You've acted honorably and in good faith towards Jerubbabel and his family today. May Ambelamech be your joy and not let fire come out. But if Ambelamech and Beth Milo um, can, um, is not, then may it consume you and the citizens of Shechem. Let fire come from you and the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Ambelamech. Then, then Jotham fled, escaping to beer, which is not what I escape to sometimes, but it was an actual place. It's a different kind of beer. Um, Jotham flees and escapes to beer, and he lived there as he was afraid of Abimelech. So basically, what does he, he says? He says, look, if everything happened the way that God wanted to, then who am I to cast a curse or say that it's not good? If this is the way you really think it's best to find a king, to find, a, and that's what the people want. That's what we want, right? We want a king. We want somebody to lord over us. Everybody else had great kings, and the people of Israel, God says, I'll be your king. And they're like, yeah, but we can't see you. We can't touch you. We can't interact with you like the other kings. Plus, we want somebody that the other countries can see. So they had this idea that they wanted a king, a judge. They wanted somebody to rule over them. Well, they got it. And Jotham says, but look, if this did not happen the way that God really designed, then this is what is going to happen. And Bilamech's going to destroy you guys, and then you are going to destroy him. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. This curse is fulfilled. And I'm going to hurry here. But the story just keeps getting crazy. 
So, after Ambilovic had governed Israel for three years, he said, God sent, in verse 23 of chapter 9 is the first mention of God. All of a sudden, God gets involved. Not that he wasn't involved before, but now he, get, he takes an active role in the story. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. And it goes bad, 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 gets worse and worse. And skipping down all the way to verse 26, Gaul, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers to Shechem. And the citizens put their confidence in him. So this guy Gaul moves to town. And he had some wealth and popularity and power and prestige. And the people take notice. And they're like, oh, this guy Gaul is pretty good. He's a lot better than Abimelech. The three years under Abimelech have been treacherous and horrible. But Gaul shows up. And Gaul, they start to have confidence in Gaul. And this is what happens. After they had gone out to the fields to gather... Um, their grapes and trodden them. They held a festival in the temple to their God. While they were eating and drinking, and they cursed Ambilamuk, and Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Ambilamuk? And who is Shechem? And what should we be subject to him? Isn't he Jerubal's son? Isn't Zibel his deputy? That was like his right hand man. Serve men with honor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Ambilamuk? If only this would be under my command, I will get rid of him. I would say to Ambilalek, call out your whole army. So he basically calls out. They're having this party. Everybody's drinking. They're being merry. He's probably getting a little tipsy. And he's like, why do we serve this guy? He's not a good leader. And if you let me, I'll take him down. And that's exactly what happens, except his right-hand man gets word of it. So he sends a runner to Ambilalek and says, hey, Gaul is here, and he's causing a ruckus. He's stirring up the people against you. Matter of fact, you're going to lose your throne to this guy if you don't do something. So Ambilalek says, I'll do something. And he comes, and he sacks the town, and he takes it. And he kills. Matter of fact, he chases, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but he chases all these people into the stronghold. And then it says that him and his men lit it on fire and a thousand men, women, and children were all killed that day. And then he goes to another city and sacks it. And matter of fact, it says he sows salt so that nothing will ever grow there. And then he goes to this last place where he's going to finally Show people, I'm in charge. And this is, skipping all the way down, this is where we find, um, he goes up to Thebes in verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and the women and the people fled. They locked themselves and climbed in the tower to the roof. And Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. And he approached the entrance of the tower to set fire to it. And this is, this is crazy. And a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. So, Abimelech, this guy who has been raising Cain and just wreaking terror on the people, he goes to this tower and it says that a woman pushes a rock off and it falls down and it crushes his skull. But even in the moment of defeat, and Bimelech is so full with pride, listen to this. Hurriedly, he called his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me. 
so that it can't be say, uh, said, a woman killed me. So a servant ran him through, and he died. It, it, so even in his death, he's so prideful. He's like, I don't want to be remembered by people that a woman killed me. Armor bearer, you kill me. So they kill him, and that's the end of the story. The craziest verse in this whole entire passage to me is the next verse. Because what you have is you have a, a horrible, sinful, evil man rise to power through all these treacherous, horrible things he does. The people agree with it for a minute, and then they realize they made a horrible error. He's destroying them. They finally destroy him. And then in verse, um, the next verse, 55, it says, And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. That's it. Okay, end of story. We're good now. I mean, that's crazy to me. It's like, wait, there should be more. Like, tell me what really happened after that. But there's not. And that's kind of the end of the story. And then it says, Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbabel, came upon them. And that's it. So you could read that and you could be like, wow, that was a cool story. But what am I supposed to take away? Well, one, in Scripture, any time that something is repeated, where there's repetition, that means you're supposed to pay deep attention to that. Matter of fact, they didn't have exclamation points in, in the Greek language, so any time, or Hebrew language, when they repeat it three times, that was kind of like putting an exclamation point there. Well, in Judges, we see this cycle. We see this cycle of... Like I said, there's a time of joy and then we fall into this sin and we do what feels right in our heart or in our mind or in our eyes. And the problem is, is we forget that our heart and our mind and our eyes is sinful, dark, sinful. And that's the truth. If you flip with, this is where we're going to hang out the rest of the day is in Romans 3. Because I think this speaks to, we could read this story and be like, man, Belalek was a jerk. And he was. I mean, he absolutely was. But we could start to feel really self-righteous about why did the people of God, why did people think that he was a good leader? Another thing is, why didn't anybody else want to step up and serve? There's all kinds of things in that story that we can look at about Christian leadership and how we should lead and how we should serve, and what we should do, and who we should follow. But at the end of the day, what I want to point out is our desperate attachment addiction to sin. Every one of us. And you could read this, and you could be like, where is the hope? I am sinful. Even though I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I still sin every day. It's a battle. It's a cycle. The story of Judges, it's about hundreds of years. But for me, my battle with sin happens every minute of every day. And it's the same for you. Look at what it says in Romans 3. And this is the Apostle Paul talking. He says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and all 
together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's not real. Thanks, Paul. You know, that's not real exciting to hear. Then he says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and, um, and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God because of their eyes. Now, that description was me. And it was you. Paul's taking a lot of verses out of the Old Testament to give a description. And he had just written, hey, what's the difference between Jews and Gentiles? And he's talking about how there is no difference. Everybody is equally sinful because we were born into sin. There's not one of you that can just all of a sudden decide, well, I'm going to be less sinful in and of myself. It doesn't work that way because this is who we are. That is our character. That is our nature that was born into sin. And if you read that, you would think, man, there's just no hope. I know a lot of people, but I wouldn't use that description on them. But when you really look at our heart, see, we can cover up the outside sins. We can get a haircut and shave and look pretty presentable to everybody around us. But when we go to our hearts, our hearts are a very deceitful, dark, and sinful place that desperately need a hero, that desperately need a savior. We read the story of Abimelech and we think, man, how were people were just jacked up back then. And they were, but they are today. They still are. You still are. I still am. But the hope, the hope is that God did send the hero. It was Jesus. But he was the hero that didn't do great things and then all of a sudden have another fall like everybody else we see in Judges. He's our eternal hero. He's the one that came, did it perfectly, and saved us for all eternity. Listen to the rest of what Paul says in Romans 3 here. Now, we know that whatever the law says, and to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by his own observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscience of sin. The law was not there. If you could live the law perfectly, you get to go to heaven. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus, the rich young ruler, came up to him, the teacher of the law. He said, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you've got to be perfect. If you live the law perfectly, you can go to heaven. But the challenge or the problem in saying that is none of you can do it. And if you're sitting there and I'm offending you, I, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm not trying to be offensive, but I'm trying to draw, make this point go home into your head. Wake up tomorrow morning, or better yet today, get in your car and say, I'm not going to sin at all today. I'm not going to have one impure thought. I'm not going to have one impure motive. I'm not going to say something that might hurt or offend somebody else. I'm going to totally have my mind on God and do everything that he wants me to do today and only that. And I just say, good luck with that. See, the law isn't there to, for us to try to necessarily follow it perfectly. The law is there to expose how sinful we are. 
it, it brings it to the surface like, oh my gosh. I mean, I might not be murdering 70 people, but man, I probably commit murder in my heart because I don't love people like I should. I might not be treacherously trying to overthrow governments, but I'm trying to take control of my life from God almost every day in treachery and saying, I want to be in charge. There's sin that's so deep-rooted. But when you see how big of a sin problem you have, that's what makes Jesus so much bigger. Because when you realize, I can't do anything about my sin. I can, yes, I can be driven to obedience, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm being sanctified, and yes, I'm, the problems I have today are a lot different than the problems when I first started following Christ 25 years ago. But there's still this giant problem of sin, and that's what Paul is talking about. And here's where the hope exists, starting in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and to all who believe. Wow. So there's hope. So even though I'm a sinful jerk most of the time, Jesus loves me. And his perfect work on the cross, all of a sudden I'm not under the law of sin anymore. I'm under the law of grace. My faith in Christ has redeemed me. My faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on my behalf is what rescues us from this cycle. Judges is, a, is just a cycle of us. When we look at it, we should see ourselves. We desperately want a king. We desperately want a hero. And we have one in Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, and you're like, well, what, does, what has Jesus done for me lately? Oh, my goodness, that just tells me that you don't understand how sinful you are. I think there's a fear in our country because we are a nation that claims to be Christian. And we look around, and when we look, and I, I look at this story, and I'm like, man, I'm a lot better than Abilamech. I mean, I've never killed anybody in anger. I've never had to do anything like any of that stuff. And we start to think, well, I'm a pretty good guy. But the truth is, we're not. Because I'm not compared to him. I'm compared to God's perfection. I'm compared to Christ. And without Christ, I'm going to fall short of the glory that God expects. But with Christ, all of a sudden, and this is the craziest part. I'm going to close with this. The craziest part is when God looks down at Spencer, when he looks down at you, if you have decided to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, he doesn't see all the sinful stuff. He knows about it. He knows Spencer perfectly. He knows my heart. He knows the darkest, deepest parts of my heart that I don't even want to truly look into. And he says, you know what? I love him. I love him so much. I love him so much that I'm going to cover up all of that. Every ounce of sin that he has ever committed or ever will commit is going to be covered by my love. So that when my father sees him, he sees perfection. He sees my righteousness. 
If that's not the best hero that we could ever have, I don't know what is. So today, if you came in and you were thinking pretty high of yourself, you shouldn't. Okay? Because you're sinful. And today, if you came in and you were thinking pretty low of yourself, man, I'm not a very good Christian. You're probably not. But God loves you. Because it's not about you. It's about him. And know what? As you understand that, you fall more and more in love with him. All of a sudden, the things become less and less. And sin becomes smaller and smaller. Even though it's, it's deeper and deeper. The superficial sins become less and less. And you start to be more attracted to Christ and wanting to follow him out of obedience. Because you know that's what's good, not because somehow he'll love you more. So that's what I wanted to share with you all today. And I hope, you know, like I said, if you came in feeling beat up, I hope you leave with hope. If you come in feeling pretty good about yourself, I hope you leave with hope that God can even forgive your self-righteousness because he loves you. He loves me. Don't judge yourself by the way other people act. Judge yourself according to how God judges you in Christ. Let's pray.